First Chronicles chapter number 11 this morning, and I'd like to read just a few passages of Scripture, and I want to show you a picture of Christ. Can I say to you that it's all about Jesus Christ this morning? He said, search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have salvation, and they are they which testify of me. They speak of me. He said, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me to do thy will, O God. And you go through the Bible and you'll find him all the way through Genesis to Revelation. You say, I didn't know he was back in Genesis. Who do you think walked in the cool of the evening with Adam? Who do you think it was that stopped the hand of Abraham and said, Thou hast not withheld thine son, thine only son, from me? Who do you think it was that wrestled with Jacob at Penuel and injured him that he might depend upon God? Who do you think it was that was with Joseph in the prison when everyone had forsaken him? We could go through the book of Exodus. Do you all mind if I do this this morning? We'd go through the book of Exodus and we'd see him in the burning bush. We'd see him in the rock that followed him. Uh, we'd see him in the fire uh, of a pillar of fire by night and the pillar of smoke by day. We could go into the book of uh, Leviticus and we'd see him as every single sacrifice that was ever offered. We could go to the book of Numbers. We'd see him as the brazen serpent upon the pole. We could go to the book of Deuteronomy and we'd find that he's the giver of the law the second time. We could go to the book of Joshua and we'd see him on the hillside taking command away from Joshua, toppling the walls of Jericho. We could go to the book of Judges and we'd see him coming up out of a fire to pronounce the birth of Samson. And we'd see him uh, leading Gideon uh, against the Midianites. We could go to the book of 1 Samuel and we'd find him as a picture of uh, David, as the little shepherd boy, as a picture of him. We could go to the book of 2 Samuel uh, and we'd find him all through the life of David. We can go through First and Second Chronicles and First and Second Kings and we'll find out that he is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. We could go into the book of Esther uh, and we'd find him as the providential God who's not mentioned but is always present. We could go to the book of Ruth and we'd see him as our kinsman redeemer. We could go to the book of Job. We'd find him as the faithful God uh, that is in the darkness. We could go to the book of Psalms and we'd find him as the good shepherd. We could go to the book of Proverbs and we'd find him as uh, wisdom manifested. We could go uh, to the book of Ecclesiastes and we'd see him as the preacher. We could go to the book of Song of Solomon, and there we'd find him as the coming bridegroom for his bride. We could go to Isaiah 53, and we'd find him smitten and afflicted, uh, and we esteemed him stricken of God, but we'd find that he was the one on whom the Lord laid all of our iniquities that paid our price. We could go to the book of Jeremiah, and we'd find in that prophet's heart the weeping and brokenness over sin that God has. We could go to the book of Hosea, and we'd find him as Hosea with an adulterous and unfaithful wife that loved her and bought her back unto himself. And we could go all the way through the Old Testament. We could go to the book of Micah and find that he's coming again to be born in Bethlehem. Uh, we could go to the book of Matthew and we'd see him as king of kings. We'd go to the book of Mark. We'd see him as the servant of man and the servant of God. We could see him in the book of Luke as the son of man. We could go to the book of John and we'd see him as the son of God. We'd see him in the book of Acts as the bar, as the head of the New Testament church. And on and on we could go till we'd come right around to Revelation and see Him coming in power and in glory with a name written on His thigh, King of kings, Lord of lords, and His vesture dipped in blood. And you'd find all through the book of the Word of God, He's on every page. And I want in First Chronicles chapter 11 to try to show you a picture of Jesus this morning. Let's read at verse number 22. We find ourselves reading about David's mighty men. 
And it says of a man by the name of Benaniah, or Benaiah, that he was the son of Jehoiada. It says, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man of Kabzeel, who had done many acts. He slew two lion-like men of Moab. Also, he went down and slew a lion in a pit in a snowy day. And he slew an Egyptian, a man of great stature, five cubits high. And in the Egyptian's hand was a spear like a weaver's beam. And he went down to him with a staff and plucked the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and slew him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and had the name among the three mighties. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that you've given us. Thank you for your goodness and grace. Lord, I pray that you'd show us your son this morning. Lord, that you'd not just show him to us, but he would be manifest in this service. God, that the Holy Spirit would have liberty to move and to stir and to do his office work in that which only you can do. If there's any amongst us that are lost and undone, show them their great need of Calvary. And we'll be sure to thank you for it. In Christ's name, amen. As I read about Benai, how loud am I? I feel like I'm real loud. Am I not? Maybe I'm real loud up here, but I'm not real loud. You want me to be real loud? I can be real loud. But I don't think that's what anybody wants. Amen. All right. As I look at the person of Benai, and you may have studied about the mighty men before, and there's not much greater of a blessing as you study through the Word of God than to read about these mighty men, a group of 30-some men that were sort of a personal guard to King David. At a time when everyone had forsaken him, they stayed faithful. In fact, Uriah the Hittite was one of David's mighty men, making David's treachery all the darker. Whenever David ordered Uriah to be killed, it wasn't a stranger he was ordering, but it was one of his dearest friends. And of these mighty men, we could go through and we could say something about each and every one. But this morning, I want us to focus on a man by the name of Benaiah. We're told three acts that he did. We're told that he slew two lion-like men of Moab. We're told that he went down into a pit on a snowy day and slew a lion. And we're told that he met an Egyptian in battle. And that Egyptian had a spear, and Benaiah went down with a staff and took that spear out of his hand and killed him with his own spear. Now, some of you may be thinking, Preacher, how do you ever see Jesus Christ in that passage? Well, as I studied this, and just by way of introduction, I noticed a few things about Benaiah. You see, I believe he was a picture of Christ, number one, in his identity. You know that names in the Word of God had meaning. They were significant. And uh, you'll remember in the Old Testament maybe that whenever Rachel, uh, the wife of Jacob, had her son by the name of Benjamin, that she named him Ben-Ami, which means son of my sorrow. Rachel was dying at this time. She knew that she was dying. And uh, I guess, I don't know, maybe you'd do that if you was a mother too, get that last shot in. I don't know. But she named Benjamin Ben-Ami, which means son of my sorrow. Uh, well, Jacob looked at that little boy and he knew that God was going to use him and God was going to bless him. And so he changed his name from Ben-Ami, son of my sorrow, to Benjamin, the name that we know him as. Now, some of you are saying, well, preacher, we're talking about Benaiah. We're not talking about Benjamin. No, but Benjamin's name when it was Ben-Ami was son of my sorrow. But then Jacob changed it to Benjamin, son of my right hand or son of my power. Now, you say, preacher, what does that mean to me? Well, you'll notice in both of those names the uh, common usage of that uh, word ben that in the Hebrew denotes uh, the word son, the son of my sorrow or the son of my right hand. 
Now, if you know anything about Bible names, you'll know that there's uh, predominantly uh, two endings to most Bible names. It's usually either the ending E-L, and you'll see it all through the Old Testament. E-L will be how a name will end. For instance, Ezekiel. Ezekiel's name means the strength of God. That word E-L or that ending E-L denotes uh, uh, the idea of Elohim, the God uh, of the universe. But then you'll find another usage, and that is names that end with the letters A-H. You say, preacher, what does this mean? Well, uh, names that end with the letters A-H, like Elijah or Elisha or Isaiah, uh, denote the use of the name Jehovah. Uh, You see, when they ended in A-H, their name meant something with Jehovah. Now, let's just do a little bit of uh, linguistic homework together. Can we do that? If Ben-Ai's name begins with Ben, which means what? It means son. And if his name ends with A-H, which denotes what? Jehovah. Then we find that by his very name, Ben-Aiah was called the Son of Jehovah, the Son of the Lord. Can I say to you that I'm thankful uh, that God has many sons. I'm thankful I'm a son, and if you know Christ, uh, or you're His son, I'm thankful He has many daughters. But can I say that there's only one begotten Son of the Father. There's only one Jesus Christ. There's only one uh, that has eternally been His Son, not in eternity future only, But in eternity past, He's always been God and He's always been the Son of God. And I see by His name, Ben-Aiah represents Jesus Christ. But not only by His identity, but by His ancestry. The Bible tells us that He's the son of a man named Jehoiada. Now here again we find that ending of A-U's. And Jehoiada's name means, listen to this, the knowledge of Jehovah. That's what Jehoiada's name means. Now, you're saying, preacher, well, that's insignificant. So what? People have different names. My name is Toby. People have asked me, said, is your name really Tobias? And I say, no, because it's not. (laughs) That's not on my birth certificate. I'm not Tobias. I'm just Toby. Every time I tell people my name, they'll say, what's your name? I'll say Toby. And they always squeal and they go, oh, I had a dog named Toby. That's the curse of being named Toby, I guess. The word or the name Toby is found only in the Word of God one time. And it's not Toby, but it's Tobijah. Uh, and it means Jehovah is good. Now you say, what are you telling us this for? Because I want you to know that names have significance in the Word of God. Jehoiada's name was the knowledge of Jehovah. Now why is that significant? Well, I'd ask you this. When Jesus Christ came into the world, why did He come into the world? Now some of you are saying, preacher, He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And that's true. Some of you are saying, He came uh, that He might receive sinful men. And that's true. But what was it that put Christ manifest in the flesh? What was it that gave Him an appointment with Calvary? The Bible says in the book of Acts uh, chapter number 2 that He was uh, set forth by the predeterminate counsel and foreknowledge of God. I'll tell you the reason that Christ came to this world. Yes, He came to express the love of God. Yes, He loved us. Yes, He came to die for us. But at the end of the day, the reason He came is He said, I do always the will of my Father. The reason Benaiah was there was because of the will of Jehovah, his daddy, Jehoiada. But I see not only by his ancestry, but I see also uh, by his humility. 
Now you say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, I mean this. He came from a place by the name of Cabzeal. How would you like to live in Cabzeal? Amen? Wouldn't it be tough to tell people, I came from Cabzeal, Tennessee. Thankfully, we don't have one. Uh, but uh, Benaiah came from a city called Cabzeal. This was a city of the tribe of Judah. But do you know what Cabzeal means? Oh, this blessed me. I'm going to bless you here in a second if you'll help me. Amen? Help me and I'll bless you. It means the congregation of God. You see, Benaiah had left a place of the people of God and had gone to the battlefield to do his duty. Can I say to you that Jesus Christ the righteous, the Son of God, left a place that was all about Him. Left a place where the congregation of God was. Left a place where He was adored, where He was loved, where He was revered. To go to the battlefield for you and for I. But I see not only by his identity and his ancestry and his humility, but I see it by his nationality. Because you'll remember, as I just said, that Cabzeel was a city of Judah. Can I say to you that the Bible is very clear that Jesus Christ is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. That's the kingly tribe. But I find another interesting fact, and I'm going to preach here in a second if you'll hang with me. I see it not only by his identity, not only by his ancestry, not only by his humility, and not only by his nationality, but I see it by the duty which he performed. If you used to look in 1 Chronicles 27 and verse 5, you know the Bible calls him a chief priest. So that tells me that though he came from a city in Judah, the Levites in the Old Testament who were the priestly tribe, uh, they didn't have any inheritance. The Lord was their inheritance. And so uh, many times they would be dispersed out through the nation of Israel. And so though he came from a city in the tribe of Judah, he was still a chief and high priest. Can I say to you that the Bible says, consider him who is the high priest and apostle of our profession. The Bible says we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Do you know that the Bible says that Jesus Christ, when He ascended up on high, He sat Himself down at the right hand of the Father. And the Bible says He ever liveth to make intercession for us. You say, what are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying that our Savior was the Son of Jehovah. He was here by the will of God. He left the congregation of heaven. He came from the tribe of Judah. And he sits now as our high priest. By the way, we're going to see that Benaiah's actions were prophetic. You know what that makes him? That makes him both prophet, priest, and king. And I began to study about what this man Benaiah did. I began to think about how that could picture what Jesus Christ did for us. And I find three great enemies that he slew, and I want to give them to you very quickly. The Bible tells us that he slew three lion-like men of Moab. You say, preacher, how could that apply to me? Well, as I study these three lion or these two lion-like men, you know what they remind me of? They remind me of the Old Testament of the law and the prophets. Do you know that the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law? You say, well, preacher, how do you see the law in that passage? Well, this is why. Number one, I want you to notice their distinction. The Bible says they were of Moab. Now, you say, what's significant about Moab? Well, what's significant about Moab is whenever a lot came out of Sodom and Gomorrah, he didn't go to the mountains as God had instructed him, but he went to a plain city called Zoar. And there, as he watched the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the Bible teaches us that his two daughters got him drunk and had an incestuous relationship with him.
And as a result of that incestuous relationship, uh, there were two different sons that were born. One uh, was the uh, head of the nation that would become the Ammonites, and the other was the head of the nation that would become the Moabites. You see, all through the Old Testament, both the Ammonites and the Moabites are pictures of the flesh. That which is a part of us, that which we can never divorce from us this side of heaven, that which afflicts us on a continual basis. And can I say to you that Every single one of us has a sin-sick flesh. We're all sin-fallen. We all battle our flesh. You know, the Bible teaches us. Now you're saying, well, preacher, that's the flesh. That's the flesh. That's not the law. What was wrong with the law? Well, there was nothing wrong with the law. But where did the law get its strength? Why was the law given? Listen to what Paul said in Romans 5.20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. You see, the Bible teaches us that our flesh is sinful, our flesh is wicked, and God gave His law that He might set boundaries and show us. Uh, not Listen, God didn't give the law so we'd become sinful. God gave the law to show us that we are sinful. And all through the Old Testament, the Old Testament uh, precepts and the Old Testament law that is shown forth, every time they approached uh, unto God, there was always a barrier. Only once a year could the high priest go into the presence of God, and he had to have a blood sacrifice with him. It was called the Holy of Holies. Whenever uh, God uh, brought the children of Israel to Mount Sinai uh, to give them the law, He didn't welcome them with open arms. He didn't say, come on in and sit down and we'll fellowship. Instead, He told Moses, He said, you keep them away from the mountain. If somebody tries to go to the mountain, you thrust them through with a spear. They can't come near to me. I'm holy. I'm righteous. Their sin-sick flesh can't approach to me. They come to this mountain and they're going to die. Can I say, and oh, I'll preach it here in a second, but can I say that we do not come to a mountain that is shaking and smoking and thundering and on fire, the book of Hebrews says. I'm thankful that we're not coming to Mount Sinai to have fellowship with God. I'm thankful that we're not coming to the law to find peace and a mediator. I'm thankful that we come to the heavenly Jerusalem. We come to Mount Sinai. Uh, maybe by Moses came the law, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. We have an advocate with the Father through Jesus Christ. I see by their distinction they were from Moab. And the law was given its power through our flesh. The Bible says, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. The law was great, except we couldn't keep it. We had no capacity to keep it. And I see not only by their distinction, but I see by their description. What does the Bible say? It says they were lying like men. Now, we're going to talk in a minute, and I'm going to preach all over it in a second. But, you know, the Bible says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary uh, roameth as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Uh, do you understand that our flesh mimics what the devil does? Anything of Satan, our flesh is going to love. And anything of God, our flesh is going to hate. There's no question about it. You see, when I see these line like men, I don't say that the law was wicked, but I agree with Paul. Listen to what he said in the book of Romans, chapter number 7. Let me read it to you. He said, for I was alive without the law once. That's what Paul said. Paul said, there was a time I didn't know I was a sinner. There was a time I didn't know what God expected. There was a time I thought I was righteous. I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, he said, I found to be unto death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it slew me. 
Wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? In other words, was the law made death? Was it a problem with the law? God forbid, he says. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. For we know, listen now, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. You see, when God gave His holy law, it wasn't to bring us closer. It was to show us how far away we were. When God gave His Old Testament law, it wasn't to show us how much like God we were. He'll show us how much like the devil we were. To show us, not that we were the children of God by nature, but that we by nature were the children of wrath and disobedience, that we by nature were the children of the devil. You see, when the law entered, we became exceeding sinful and we appeared as sin. But I see not only their distinction and their description, but I see their defeat. The Bible says what? About Benai, it says that he met him, but it says that he slew him. You know, the Bible speaks of the Old Testament law, and you know what it says? It says that it was the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us. The Old Testament law, and listen, our sin was the barrier between us and God, but the Old Testament law showed us our sin. It was an ever-present reminder that we were sinful. And can I say to you that, listen, it's good for God to love us and it's good for God to forgive us. But can I say that God can't forgive us unless His justice and His holiness is vindicated and fulfilled and satisfied. I asked a Muslim one time, I was talking to him, I said, how does uh, Allah forgive you? He said, well, I don't know, He just forgives me. I said, what do you mean He just forgives you? You've done something wrong, you've sinned against Him. He said, He just forgives me, He's able to. I said, then you've got a weak God. Because your God doesn't mean what He says or say what He means. Your God says that He doesn't want you to sin, but then when you sin, He's not got courage or righteousness or holiness enough to take action against it. But the Bible teaches that the soul that sinneth, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. You say, oh, preacher, what are we going to do about that? What are we going to do about this Old Testament law? How can we deal with all these commandments that God has set forth? The Bible says in the book of Galatians that when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son born of a woman, made of a woman, born under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. You know what the Bible says about Jesus Christ? That He's the end of the law unto righteousness to everyone that believeth in Him. He said, I'm not coming to destroy the law. I'm coming to fulfill it. And when God looks at Jesus Christ, He sees a perfect satisfaction for His judgment. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 53 uh, that whenever God looked upon Him, that His soul was satisfied. Can I say there's nothing that has to be added to the works of Jesus Christ's righteousness. There's nothing that has to be added. Uh, we think of Jesus Christ as being very Western. Very. I don't know why every time you see any representation of Jesus Christ, He's always a hippie. He's always snowboarding, drinking Mountain Dew. He's always radical. If you were to see Jesus Christ, you know what He'd look like? He'd look like a Jew. Uh, he, in fact, He was the perfect Jew. He kept every single work of the law. Every jot and every tittle was kept and it did not pass away. He kept every 
portion of the law. And then he went to the cross of Calvary. And you know what happened? He took his robe off, put it on us. And he took our robe off and put it on him. We've traded the old coat for the new coat. We've traded our righteousness for his righteousness. And these two line like men of Moab, the Old Testament law uh, that would look at us and scorn at us and jeer at us and say, you're not righteous. You can't do it. You're unable. Here's a barrier. Here's a way that you cannot pass. Jesus Christ has passed that way. He's made a way for you and I. He's fulfilled the law. And if we stand righteous in Him, the Bible says, Paul said this in the book of Philippians, not having mine own righteousness. He said, all the things that are my righteousness, he said, I count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in Him. Paul says, if I stand before the judgment of God with my righteousness, it's not going to be worth anything. So I give away my righteousness only that I might be found in Him. I see the fulfilling of the law. Then I see a second enemy that he defeated. And the Bible says that he went into a pit on a snowy day and slayed a lion. Now we know that the Lord has fulfilled the Old Testament law for us. But what of our great adversary that Peter speaks about in 1 Peter chapter 5? Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. He's the destroyer. He's the thief. He's the father of lies. He's the prince of darkness. And he's the accuser of the brethren. What did Christ do? I want you to notice not only the foe, that he is Satan, but I want you to notice the field of battle. Uh, You know, it's one thing to fight someone on level ground. It's one thing to fight someone in good weather. But the Bible says of Jesus Christ that he went down into a pit. What is this pit that he went into? Uh, It could be the pit of the grave, but I don't think that's what it's talking about. For you see, Jesus Christ did not pay... Listen to me now. Jesus Christ did not pay for our sins in hell. Jesus Christ paid for our sins on the cross. Now, now that it, Joyce Myers, she don't believe that. You know that? She believes that Jesus Christ had to go to hell to pay for our sins. But the Bible says when He hung on the cross, He said, It is finished. He didn't have to go to hell to pay for our sins. You know what paid for His sins? His perfect and righteous life. God poured His judgment upon Him on the cross of Calvary. That paid for our sins. He didn't go into hell to pay for our sins. You say, well, I thought the Bible says He descended into the lower parts of the earth. Oh, He did descend into the lower parts of the earth. But He didn't go down there to pay for our hell. He didn't go down there. Listen, He didn't go as a convict. He went as a conqueror with the keys of death and hell that He might take the Old Testament saints out of paradise and lead captivity captive. Oh, He didn't go down to pay. It was already paid for. He went down to provide deliverance. Listen to what the Bible says. That that was free. Listen to what the Bible says in the book of Psalms. The Bible says about our Lord and Savior in Psalms 88, it says this is a prophetic or a messianic psalm. It says, O Lord God of my salvation, I have cried day and night before Thee. Let my prayer come before Thee. Incline Thine ear unto my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draweth nigh unto the grave. I am counted with them that go down into the pit. Listen to what it says. It goes on a little farther, and it says, Thou hast laid me in the lowest pit. You say, where was that lowest pit? He says, in the darkness, in the deeps. Thy wrath lieth hard upon me. And thou hast afflicted me 
with all thy waves. I would have you know that Jesus Christ did enter a pit for us. There upon the cross of Calvary, the Bible gives us seven cries that the Lord gave forth. And one of them is very, very unique. Because the Bible, if we were to follow the chronology of the crucifixion, we'd find that He hung on the cross uh, for three hours and then something very unusual happened. You see, He had been made a spectacle before mankind. He had been mocked. He had been scorned. But the purpose of Calvary was not just that He'd be made a spectacle, not that He'd be humiliated, not that He'd be scorned. It was not man that had to exact judgment upon Christ. It was another. The Bible teaches us that about the ninth hour that there was a darkness that fell over the land. And you say, oh, well, that, you know, it fell over Israel. No, Luke says it fell over the whole earth. And in the midst of that darkness, the Bible tells us that our Lord cried out. Very unusual. The Bible says He cried out, and this was uh, how it would have sounded in His language. He said, Eli, Eli, Homa Sabachthani. The Bible tells us what that means. It's prophetically given in Psalms 22. David utters it, writes it. But our Lord, what He was saying was this, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? You see, it was there in the pit of God's judgment on the cross of Calvary that God pulled the drapes closed around Him and His own Son. He turned His back upon the sin that our Lord had been made. The Bible says He was made sin for us. And there upon the cross of Calvary, and I don't know, I can't understand it, I can't explain it, but something was severed that we might never be severed. I don't know how to explain it. I can't give you all the theological ideals or terms, but I know that through His whole earthly walk, and I'm convinced that all through eternity past, when our Lord would speak to His Father, He would look at Him and He would say, Father. But on the cross, He said something different. And never before and never since has it ever been uttered from the lips of the divine Son of God. But for your sins and for my sins, He cried out and He didn't say, Father. He said, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? Something was cut. Something was severed. Something changed that we might have fellowship and communion with God. There in the darkness of that pit, you say, a snowy day? Yes, barren. Barren, hostile environment. He met Satan and defeated his grand and master plan. You say, what's Satan's plan? Satan knows he's damned to the lake of fire. His desire is to take as many with him as he can. And he wanted to see mankind spiral away from God in rebellion. But there in the darkness of that moment, all that Satan had tried to accomplish, oh God just destroyed it by paying for our sin. And the Bible says by reconciling us. Satan would seek to push us as far away from God as he can. But there on the cross of Calvary, the judgment of God and the love of God met forth and grace poured out for you and I in the death of Christ. We see the final result. What does it say about Satan? What does it say about his master plan? The Bible tells us that Satan was defeated on that day. I want to read it to you and then I'll give you one other thing. Listen to what the Bible says in Colossians 2.15. It says, And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. 
on the cross of Calvary. Satan was defeated. I've heard some people say, no, Satan wasn't defeated. Sure, he was defeated. He hasn't been abolished yet, but he's been defeated. The stinger's been pulled out. The teeth have been knocked out. (laughs) The strength has been robbed from him. And now, thanks to Calvary, we don't have to be in bondage to him anymore. I see the foe that Christ laid low. I see the fulfilling of the law. But I see one final thing, and I'm done. I see the fear that we were liberated from. You see, the Bible tells us that Benaiah, he slew two lion-like men of Moab. And I'm thankful Christ fulfilled the law. The Bible says he went down into a pit on a snowy day and slew a lion. And I'm thankful that he slew our adversary. But we have another enemy. The Bible tells us that this man was an Egyptian. And you'll find two things eternally connected with Egypt in the Bible. One of them is worldliness. Egypt is always a picture of the world. But another thing that is always connected with Egypt invariably is the idea of death. Egypt always brings death, and death always gravitates towards Egypt. You remember in the Old Testament when uh, uh, Moses, uh, God used Moses to uh, plague the land of Egypt with ten plagues, and the very last one was that of the death angel. There's not very many places in this world that we know of that the death angel is visited in such a manner. We know that, uh, uh, that the death angel visited Israel when David numbered the children of Israel. Uh, We know of times, of course, in a sense, we all uh, face death, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But in Egypt, uh, the Bible says that the death angel crossed over, and every single firstborn, that the blood was not applied to the doorframe of their house, that the death angel took them. You see, this Egyptian man pictures for us our great enemy, death. We find that he's a daunting enemy. The Bible says, and in Second Samuel's account, it says that he was a goodly man. And I thought, well, I don't understand that, Lord. He don't seem too goodly to me. And then I turned to First Chronicles' account, and the Bible explains what it means. You know the Bible's good about that? The Bible always explains itself if you'll study and let it. Uh, we don't have to go out and find a new version that says what we like. Amen? It always says what it means and means what it says, and it always explains what it means if we'll look. But the Bible says that he was five cubits high and he was of a great stature. Can I say that death is a daunting enemy for you and I? The Bible says in uh, the book of Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27, it is appointed unto man once to die. Death is no respecter of persons. Death has reigned, the Bible says, from Adam until now. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men. Uh, I've heard people say before, you know, uh, well, uh, maybe I'll make it out of this world alive. Unless you're saved and Jesus comes back, you won't. We're all going to face death. How could we conquer death? There was no death until Adam and Eve sinned. At least not death to the human race, we assume. There was no death. There was, uh, the Bible teaches that they could have lived forever. But when they sinned, the Bible says, uh, just like Paul had said, but when the law entered, sin revived, and I died. When they ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, they began to die. The clock was punched on their life. The Bible says that my spirit shall not always strive with man. What do you think it was saying there? You know that Adam's name means man. 
I, I kind of believe that what it's saying is not saying uh, I'll only convict for a little while. I kind of believe what it's saying, because Adam was still alive at that time, is I promised Adam death and he will die. He was 900 and something years old. Rebellion and chaos had permeated throughout the world. And I'm sure man uh, was thinking, God doesn't mean what he says, that death will come. And he says, my spirit shall not always strive with man. He's saying, Adam ain't going to live forever. And all the way from Adam until now, death has had almost uh, a universal reign over us. We see that it was a daunting enemy. But we see a daring engagement. Oh, you're going to love this. Maybe you just want to leave. I don't know. But if you, if you don't want to leave yet, you're going to love this. The Bible says that Benai came and he met this Egyptian. And when Benai came to him, the Egyptian had a spear. You say, what does that mean, have a spear? When I think of a spear, I think of a sharp end. I mean, you ain't got much of a spear if at least one end of it ain't sharp. Somebody say amen right there. If, you, if it ain't that, you just got a stick. Amen. And he came, and I thought about that sharp pointy end, and I thought about maybe the sting that it would cause when it entered the enemy. You know, the Bible says that death has a sting to it. And it's a pain to us, and it's a grief to us. But the Bible says that when Benai came and he met this Egyptian, he didn't go down with a spear, and he didn't go down with a sword. The Bible says he went down with a staff. You say, well, that don't mean nothing, preacher. Oh, sure it does. Everything in that King James Bible is on purpose. Let me tell you what it means. He went down with a staff, and a staff represents two things in the Word of God. One thing that it represents is pilgrimage. If a man has a staff, he's on a journey. But there's a second thing that, it, uh, that a staff represents. You see, a staff is called something else in the Old Testament sometimes. It's called a rod sometimes. And you say, well, why is that significant? Because you'll find in the Old Testament that most travelers would have a staff or a rod with them. Uh, you'd find that, uh, uh, that Moses had one with him. Aaron had one with him. You'd find that Joseph or that Jacob, when he died, that he worshipped leaning upon his staff. Uh, you'd find the staff prevalent all through the Old Testament. And you say, well, get on with it, preacher. What are you saying? There's one staff that's more important than the rest of them. You see, in the Old Testament, when the Ark of the Covenant was in existence, which was the meeting place of God, there was a few things that the Ark had in it that we know of. One was a copy of the Old Testament law. One was a pot of the manna that God had provided from heaven. But another thing was this, Aaron's rod was put in the Ark of the Covenant. You say, why was Aaron's rod put in the Ark of the Covenant? Because there was a time when the priesthood was being disputed. And they didn't know who should be the priest. And so God gave for this, this commandment. He said, I want every one of the nations of Israel, of the heads of the tribes, I want you all to take your staffs, and I want you all to lay your staffs down. And uh, He said, I'm going to pass over it. And when I pass over it, He says, the rod that buds forth, that's the one that I've chosen. You say, well, what does that have to do with anything? That's a picture of the resurrection. You see, Aaron's rod that budded, that old dead, dried-out stick, there was no chance it was going to come alive. Its time had passed. It was dead. If it laid there, it'd probably lay there through all eternity. But Aaron's rod was different than everyone else's rod. For you see, out of Aaron's rod, out of the death of that stick, came forth life. And the Bible teaches us that when it budded, it budded all three things. It budded leaf, and it budded the pot or the, the seed, and it budded the fruit. That pictures for us the threefold resurrection through Jesus. 
Jesus Christ. Uh, that teaches us Christ the first fruit. Uh, then those that are His at His coming, the Bible says, then at the end, at the last, all things shall be delivered up. You see, the Bible teaches us that through the resurrection of Jesus, oh, I like this. Let me just put it as plain as I can. Uh, the Lord met death on death's battlefield. And the Bible says that He through death defeated death. Death had a spear. Christ came with a resurrection. He robbed death of its sting, destroyed death through death, and gave us the victory through it. We see the deliverance. I don't even know where I'm at in my notes anymore, and I don't care. We see the deliverance that God gave us through the power of the resurrection. You see, you and I, we don't have to fear death if we know God. You know how God looks at it? He says, precious in the, eye, in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. The Bible says there's coming a day when death will be uh, destroyed. Right now it's been abolished. You know what that means? That means, yes, death is still present. But it doesn't have to be a conqueror among us. It's been abolished just like Satan has. The power has been robbed. He's a defeated enemy. There was a time, listen, when the death pangs would separate us. How it would separate mankind. They had no hope. They had no help. But thanks to Calvary, death is no longer the period. It's now the comma. It's no longer the victor. It's now the doorway. And we know that through the resurrection of Christ, we have victory over death. 